I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. M-S-W Media. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike that there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 39, I think, of clean up on aisle 45. (laughs) It's Wednesday, October 13th. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. And with me from the middle of the Atlantic Ocean is my co-host, Andrew Torres. Woo, Allison, I have missed you so much. Although um, I, I listened to the last two episodes, Renato Mariotti, Morgan Stringer, I kind of feel like maybe the show got a little better while I was away. I don't know. You know while, while you were kissing mermaids and riding the El Nino and walking the sands with the crustaceans, I was here with Mo Stringer and Renato. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're excellent, but there is no substitute for my dungeon basement lawyer. Um, And I am so glad to talk to you again. But we have a great show today. I'm excited to do this with you. Um, This is a really good one. I'm proud of it. We're following up on major developments and two big stories we've covered here a lot in depth on this show and in both of our other shows. First, you're going to talk about the legal maneuverings and rulings concerning the Department of Justice's lawsuit and, and, you know, a motion to enjoin uh, for SB8. 
Yep, yep. And then you are going to expose the deep state conspiracy, the globalists, they're circling their wagons to protect uh, indicted fraudy McFraud pants Michael Sussman, who's part of the secret cabal <laughs> that, uh, you know, like... Uh, Andrew? Andrew? Yes, yes. <laughs> we did not become InfoWars uh, or a subsidiary thereof while you were on vacation, just so you know. We we, we didn't? I, I, I always thought that I was like the thin, I don't know, white line that held us back from cashing in on that right-wing gravy train? We would have so much more money, oh, Andrew. Oh, God, no, so much more money, yeah. <laughs> you're the <laughs> one. I remember when I turned down that Bloomberg money. Man, I'm still not in Turks and Caicos because of that. But you're the one who keeps authorizing us to run those 1-800-CASH-FOR-YOUR-BONES commercials that I have to cancel. Oh, um, yeah, fair. But what, <laughs> what really helps us from cashing in on the right-wing gravy train is is our amazing patrons who support us over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as a dollar an episode. I love our patrons who support us over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as a dollar an episode. And this week, that means I love Lisa, Amanda Loomis, Stacey Gray, and, and this is a great name, this is not the greatest voting system in the world. No, this is just a plurality. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta believe me. Um, yeah, and since it's that time again, I get to thank our Hall of Fame patrons, Stephen Mackinnon, Christopher Dalby. Do I have that right? I think so. Uh, dude, Jessica Odebeer. Who, oh, by she's the way, dreamy. Oh, yeah. Yes, our, our pink Okami, she calls herself. Uh, and I also uh, want to thank Lance Buckley, Crimer, no criming. And I gave a picture of Andrew to my orthodontist so I could get him on a retainer. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent pun. Doesn't work, but excellent pun. David in Brooklyn, also known as... Wait, wait. No, he's not AKA. He's just David in Brooklyn. But then we have our patrons who have no vowels in their name. Fivagerst Fivi. Yeah. Dr. <laughs> Hafar is what I'm going to call... H U F F A R A R A H. Edit Wikipedia. Yes, you can contribute to the world's foremost source of free knowledge and maybe get sued by a quack. Uh, Metacon 7 enjoys their four minutes and 59 seconds of legally allowed evil. Charles Jones, Chris Waltrip, January 20 baby, woo woo, Patty B. Mitchell, and our all time great Chris Simpson. Woohoo, Chris Simpson. Thank you all so much for being our Hall of Famers. We will never sell out to InfoWars as, as long as you, you know, continue to give us money. So, uh, and now on to the A block. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like, I don't feel like getting arrested. Um, uh, so <laughs> A block today, obviously one of the stories uh, we've been covering at great length is Texas's SB8, the nation's most restrictive anti-abortion law that does two things, right? First, it takes an imaginary thing called a fetal heartbeat that occurs preposterously early during a fetus's development. And it's mostly just the sounds the machine makes, by the way, yeah. at around six weeks after conception and bans all abortions after that date, which is blatantly unconstitutional. And second, in a successful effort to provide a smokescreen for the Supreme Court to not notice that first thing, SB8 also delegates all of the enforcement of the abortion ban to private vigilantes to bring civil lawsuits. And that part of the bill also has a bunch of unconstitutional stuff in it, like ex post facto bans on certain affirmative defenses, right? Yeah, and, and inexplicably, despite the fact that being double unconstitutional should have made it twice as easy for the Supreme Court to enjoin this law, our right-wing activist Supreme Court did nothing instead. Well, actually, they did two nothings, right? The first nothing they did was refusing to rule at all on the whole Women's Health Center's emergency request for injunctive relief before SB8 went into effect on September 1st. So it just went into effect as if no one had challenged it. And I, I want to emphasize this. As a lawyer, this is something the Supreme Court never, ever does, right? They don't just, like, space out on the date and let stuff happen. Like, this is their job, and they just let it go into effect. Yeah, it's almost like the shadow, shadow docket. Um, you know, what, uh, I think Steve Vladek, our friend, coined that term, and he's coming out with a book about the shadow docket soon. Had he just yeah. sold it. Um, I can't wait to read that. And then... After a full day of doing nothing, 
which I usually appreciate and applaud, <laughs> but not in this case. The court finally issued an unsigned opinion in Whole Woman's Health v. Jackson about five minutes before midnight, so they could technically date it September 1st. And that unsigned opinion also did nothing. They sort of yeah, right. put it down in writing, if you remember. Uh, more specifically, it refused to grant any kind of injunctive relief to a blatantly unconstitutional law. And if you read the opinion, this is why we criticize the right-wing activist court as sneaking through massive public policy shifts on that shadow docket that I just mentioned, because the opinion doesn't address the merits of the abortion rights bill at all. And, and frankly, that ruling on whole women's health that came down at the last second makes me worry about the final decision on injunctive relief for this bill that will eventually... Uh, yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. But 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 you are correct, right? So, in that case, the unsigned right wing majority opinion. Um, I think it was probably written by Alito, by the way. But that's just beans, right? We don't we don't know who wrote it. Um, it it's not in a sparkly unicorn trapper keeper, so probably not Amy Coney Barrett. But um, uh, it, it, the. The merits, so to speak, um, concede that Whole Women's Health, quote, raised serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law at issue. Right. That's and, and again, that's as explicit well, a language guess, as you will ever get. Yeah, I guess, Andrew, that means you and I are qualified to sit on the Supreme Court um, well. <laughs> because we knew that. Yeah. But then it goes on to say that the application, quote, also presents complex and novel antecedent procedural questions, right? That's the vigilante stuff smokescreen that you were referring to, about which the court just isn't sure whether they've carried their burden. And then there's a bunch of speculation about whether the law will really get enforced, right? And this was as of September 1st. Yeah, and then that's what paved the way for Attorney General Merrick Garland to file that lawsuit, really yep. brilliant lawsuit, in federal court in Texas that we covered in depth on this show. And that lawsuit not only challenged SB8 on the merits, but also moved for injunctive relief because, well, there was a separate motion for injunctive relief uh, because we yeah. actually have real world evidence that SB8 will indeed be enforced. The real vigilantes will bring lawsuits. We have real world evidence now. And more yep. importantly, at the threat of those lawsuits, had its intended effect, which was to effectively shut down every abortion provider in Texas and drive women and pregnant people across the border into neighboring states. We covered that extensively on the Daily Beans about, you know, fivefold, yep. tenfold um, impact on interstate commerce. Yeah. And 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 we broke down that complaint here on this show as well. Um, it is a knockdown, no brainer. Right. Un until the Supreme Court just changes the rules regarding abortion, which it is 100 percent going to do when it rules in probably May or June of, of 2022 on the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Center case. Right. That's the Alabama abortion ban that, that occurs that kicks in at 16 weeks. Right. Um, that is. Yeah, but you got to put the you yeah. got to put the Margaret Atwood horse before the cart here. Right. Yeah, that is exactly right. They have not yet heard oral argument in that case. Oral argument is scheduled for December 1, right? So right now, what we have is a race against the clock, right? And and that really matters in two key ways, right? First, I, I, I feel a little didactic for saying this, right? Like, it matters for people who get pregnant in Texas, right? And also, as, as you well pointed out in your last answer, like, it matters for people who get pregnant in states that border Texas, right, who are finding their clinics swamped with out-of-staters, and it, it is Yeah, and it's not like Oklahoma out. and uh, right. Louisiana have thousands of abortion clinics, right? I think Oklahoma yeah. has four. Right, right, yeah. Texas does not border California and New York. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. So, um I don't want this to sound unnecessarily quaint, but like those people are supposed to have constitutional rights as of today. I get that Amy Coney Barrett and Sam Alito and, and Clarence Thomas and the rest do not think that they do. But as of today, what's written down in our case books, right? What What is the law from Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which radically restricted the ruling in Roe v. Wade, but nevertheless purported to quote, 
uphold the central holding of, of Roe v. Wade uh, is that if you are pregnant uh, and it is pre-viability, the state has no right to ban abortions or to impose an undue burden on your right to, to, to procure an abortion in those cases. That's what this bill does, right? So depriving them of a year's worth of their constitutional rights is generally what we lawyers call an irreparable harm, right? That's the first <laughs> harm. The, the second way in which this race to the clock matters is that if SB8 is allowed to operate for a year, half a year, right? Six to eight months before the Supreme Court issues that opinion in Dobbs, right? This court, we know what they're trying to do, right? 100%, they will say like, oh, come on, it's not such a big deal if we overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, because after all, we've let Texas essentially ban abortion for half a year, and, you know, that state doesn't seem to be perpetually on fire yet, right? Like, they will use the application of this law as proof that everything's fine and it's no big deal. So, Allison, as you pointed out, like, that's why, and, and, and I think you're right, that it was our, our buddy Steve Vladek who, who coined the term the shadow docket. Like, that's why the shadow docket is so pernicious. It is the proverbial camel's nose under the tent. Yeah, and I mean, and that was part of, you know, what, what I don't understand is how they'll be able to say, no biggie, it's been fine. Because if I were DOJ, I would file a thing like, it's not fine. You are you right. violating the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, we have uh, federal agencies that are being you know, uh, and and it's not just you know every citizen should have access to their constitutional rights, but you know here are our specific little beefs. So, and this is what the DOJ did when they moved for injunctive relief. Um, yeah. Now that SB eight is in force, last week U.S. District uh, Court Judge Robert Pittman. Uh, of the Western District of Texas granted the preliminary injunction ruling that SB8 violates fundamental constitutional rights and the United States has both standing to sue for injunctive relief and this the standing was great it was just so well argued oh yeah <laughs> uh, to to protect its citizens and a, and a cause of action under general equitable principles and that seems to make sense right you can't immunize an unconstitutional law just by turning enforcement over to vigilantes yeah, no, that is exactly right. And and the state of Texas, as you point out the standing argument, the state of Texas made this very, very stupid argument in front of Judge Pittman um, that 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 basically got them laughed out of the opinion. Right? It said, hey, you know, uh, we don't even know how you could enforce this, right? Are you going to enjoin every single person in the state of Texas? Um, and shocker, Judge Pittman was like, um, this is a very stupid argument. Uh, he said, no, um, we, we do this kind of thing all the time. Here's all we have to do. All we have to do is enjoin the state courts in Texas from, and here I'm reading from the court's order, accepting or docketing, maintaining, hearing, resolving, awarding damages in, enforcing judgments in, enforcing any administrative penalties in, and administering any lawsuit brought pursuant to Texas Health and Safety Code sections 171.201 to 212. That's the statutory citation for, for SB8. And then it adds, and I love this because this is how lawyers talk. For clarity, this court preliminarily enjoins state court judges and state court clerks who have the power to enforce or administer SB8. Yeah, so if the end run was to let vigilantes just file lawsuits, the way to block that end run is to stop those who are definitely state actors. Right. The judges, yep. the clerks, court administrators, employees from letting those uh, who would want to reap the benefits of vigilante justice file those lawsuits. It stops them. Uh, it seems pretty straightforward to me. And like you said, we do this all the time. But then our joy yep. was rather short lived thanks to the excruciatingly conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Yeah. And, and, and so we're recording this Monday night. Um, this is just a procedural issue for now. Uh Here's what happened, okay? The second that Judge Pittman entered the injunction, Texas appealed that injunction up to the Fifth Circuit. And, um, and, and now the burdens flip, right? So what the Fifth Circuit did, it, in one sense, was, was perfectly normal, right? It administratively entered a stay of enforcement of the lower court order, which um, 
enjoined SB8 pending expedited briefing. Now, that part is, if we were not talking about the Fifth Circuit, perfectly straightforward, right? Even if it's infuriating, right? When a lower court orders injunctive relief that's going to change the status quo, typically an appellate court will say, all right, well, before we do that, uh, we're going to pause that order and stay the injunction long enough for the parties to brief their appeal. And the reason to do that is so that you don't moot the appeal, right? So that the issue is still live and preserved for the Fifth Circuit to to, to render their, their judgment. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, but when the pause, the totally normal administrative pause, causes irreparable harm and violates constitutional rights, I'm like, what the... Well, that goes back to the Supreme Court. Yeah, exactly right. Right. Yeah, it is. The status quo should not be SB8 running. And we have our Supreme Court to thanks for that. Yeah. And this administrative stay runs out Wednesday morning today when this show drops, uh, of course. So here's (laughs) your guide to understanding what the newspaper headlines mean. And just remember, we live in the opposite land. Okay, Um, so. Here's what you could be seeing today. The lower court enjoined SB8 from going into effect. So now the question is, does the Fifth Circuit let that judgment take effect while the parties litigate the merits or not? If not, the Fifth Circuit will stay the judgment and keep the status quo, which means SB8 is in effect while the parties litigate the merits. So a stay would be bad. That would stay the lower court's injunction because, you know, this was a temporary thing while they read up on it. Because, you know, the Fifth Circuit, big readers. <laughs> and today, Wednesday, when this show drops, we're two days out from that now. They are going to decide whether or not this is going to be a stay pending the entirety of the litigation. Is that correct? Do I have that? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> and there's one more wrinkle, right? Which is, this is only temporary because whichever side loses at the Fifth Circuit will immediately appeal for relief to the Supreme Court. And once again, that places us squarely right back on the shadow docket where the Supreme Court will issue a bunch of unsigned opinions that have massive consequences while Sam Alito, you know, pretends that they're just calling balls and strikes on, you know, esoteric matters of procedure. And 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 here's how you cut through that nonsense, right? If the Fifth Circuit stays the lower court's injunction and SB8 goes into effect, goes back into effect, it has already been operating for a month. The DOJ will petition the Supreme Court for relief to block that stay, but there's basically no chance that the Supreme Court grants that relief because it will be super easy. Again, shadow docket, the Supreme Court can just issue a one set, literally a one sentence per curiam opinion that says the judgment of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is affirmed with no analysis, citing no cases, not Planned Parenthood versus Casey, not Roe v. Wade, not even any administrative law cases. They can just say, yep, uh, Fifth Circuit is fine. And and a question for you. Vladek had said that the motion to enjoin by the DOJ was brilliantly written in that it was was a motion to enjoin and not a restraining order. And that actually would force the Supreme Court to hear it on the merits. It couldn't be shadow docketed, but we're not talking about that yet. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, we are talking about the preliminary We're, we're, we're on the stay. Exactly. The yeah. stay only. Yeah. yeah. And now, and then on the contrary, contrary-wise, what if it's the reverse? The Fifth Circuit has notoriously been anti-abortion. They teed yeah. up both uh, Hellerstedt. Uh, they're bad. They're bad. Right. Uh, but what if the Fifth Circuit contrary to our expectations, actually applies the law and declines to stay the lower court's injunction, as as Neil Katyal um, has predicted. Neil, Neil Katyal has actually said, you would basically have to say the Department of Justice has no standing to argue on behalf of constitutional rights. That, that, that would have to be your conclusion. Um, but, you know, obviously we'll see what happened. But then today on Wednesday, but then you'll have the state of Texas petitioning the Supreme Court for a last ditch relief. Is there any hope then? Because then we're back to shadow docket time, right? <laughs> right. And and there my answer is a, a pretty pessimistic maybe, right? Like, look, if this court actually gave a damn about the law, you'd say yes. If, and God help me for saying this, if Antonin Scalia were still alive, You'd say yes, right? You'd have people who 
cared about their view of jurisprudence and applying the law more than they cared about the outcome, right? But here's the here's the breakdown, right? Uh, we, of of how the court aligns. We have four justices who have clearly signaled that they intend to apply the law. Those were the four justices who wrote in dissent in Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, right? Mm-hmm. It's Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Chief Justice Roberts, right? On the other side, you have three justices who do not care what the law is when it comes to, you know, what they think of as protecting unborn babies, right? That's Alito, Thomas, and Amy Coney Barrett. And then... Mm, oh, no. Oh, no. Are you saying it all boils down? <laughs> I'm saying... And, and again... Is, is Gorsuch is the not, swing vote here? Yeah. We're, 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 look, like, it, 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 this is... We are not both sides in this, right? Like, this is one one millionth of an inch to the left of Amy Coney Barrett and Clarence Thomas, right? Like, it's not, you know, uh, the, 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 the fulcrum of... This is a very, very hard right group of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch um, who were handpicked by the Federalist Society to overturn Roe and Casey, right? That's why they were selected. I know one of the people who helped pick Kavanaugh, one of his former clerks, uh, when he went on Fox News, this is a guy debated, Justin Walker, who's now a judge on the D.C. Circuit, God help us all, uh, went on Fox News and his repeated catchphrase was that Justice Kavanaugh, as a Supreme Court justice, quote, will not go wobbly, end of quote. And when I broke, brought that quote up in our debate, he said, well, you know, I mean on conservative principles or whatever. What that meant to the Fox News viewing audience was he is a vote for overturning Casey and Roe v. Wade. So, Will they join some transparently stupid opinion on bizarre technical grounds to overturn the Fifth Circuit? I mean, they joined the nonsense majority opinion in Jackson, so that's kind of where I would put my chips in, right? So, um, but that's, that is indeed, as you point out, what the next eight months of reproductive freedom in Texas would come down to, and that is, can you shame one of Kavanaugh or Gorsuch. Mm. It would be easier if we investigated those 4,500 tips that came into the FBI, probably. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> That's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, and I do know that per FBI memo 2012, they couldn't investigate those. They had to hand them over to the White House. I know, before you send your emails. Uh, but... Uh, Hey, anybody who needs help in Texas, you know, I'm I'm over here in Southern California. Let me know. Arizona's pretty yeah. purple. Anyway, um, we will see. We'll see what happens today, which is two days from now. Time travel is interesting. Um, and, of course, we'll go over it next week for you, yep. whatever the decision Absolutely. is here. Uh, all right. We have uh, more cleanup stuff to get to, but we have to take a quick break. Uh, everybody stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's Allison Gill, and today's episode of Clean Up on L45 is brought to you by Policy Genius. What is scarier than getting a box of raisins while trick-or-treating? Paying too much for your home and auto insurance. That is what is scarier than raisins in your pumpkin bucket. And I have to tell you, recently I dumped USAA because they advertise all the time on Tucker Carlson, and the way I found my new company and my new rate was through Policy Genius. You can avoid all of the hassle. They make it fast and easy to compare home and auto policies all in one spot. And they can help you find coverage similar or exact to what you have now, but at a lower price. Policy Genius has saved customers an average of 1250 bucks a year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance before. Whether you're setting up a new policy or switching your old one, their team will handle all the paperwork. Getting started is easy. Just visit policygenius.com, answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property, and they will do the rest. They'll compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate, and find your lowest quotes. I saved a ton of money. Uh, the Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, including bundling your home and auto policies, which they did for me. And if they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. Their top-notch services earn Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. So head to policygenius.com to get started now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, we have a few cleanup stories to share from this past week. First, Andrew, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Sussman indictment. 
<laughs> as you know, as everyone knows. A few weeks back, the beleaguered and illegally appointed special counsel, John Durham, issued a crap indictment in his two-plus-year investigation into the oranges of Trump Russia against a Perkins Coie lawyer named Michael Sussman. Yeah, and, and by crap indictment, you mean mealy-mouthed 18 U.S.C. at 1001 charge that alleged that Sussman told James Baker of the FBI that he wasn't there on behalf of any client when he handed over information on a forthcoming press report about suspicious communications between a server in Trump Tower and Alpha Bank, right? In the indictment, Durham said that Sussman materially lied to James Baker when he told him that he wasn't there on behalf of a client. And that struck us as so fishy that we went and got a former prosecutor, Randall Eliason, to come on the show and <laughs> confirm that this was indeed hot garbage. Yeah, and I know you and I have gone over this indictment in our respective shows, and when we talked to Randall Eliason, we really took a deep dive. But specifically, talking to him, I got stuck on materiality, mm -hmm. which is an element of, of any 1001 charge, right? Specifically, in the indictment, Durham claims that the lie was material because had Sussman simply said he was there on behalf of a client, whether it's cybersecurity guy number one or uh, campaign number one, which was obviously <laughs> the Clinton campaign, if he had said that, James Baker and the entirety of the FBI in that investigation might have done things differently. And it was the word might that caught my attention, because what Durham failed to explain was how that information might have changed the way the FBI looked at the data. Yeah. And and once again, you're exceptionally present here because uh, Sussman's lawyers have now filed a court document called a motion for a bill of particulars. And you know I love obscure procedural stuff, right? <laughs> and this is Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 7F, which says that um, if an indictment doesn't give a criminal defendant specific knowledge of the elements of the crime or crimes with which they've been charged, you, as the lawyer for that criminal defendant, can move, uh, file a motion to make the government tell you exactly what the crime is and exactly what the elements are so that, you know, you can defend yourself on those specific that's elements weird. of the crime. Yeah, that's that to, to, <laughs> for which the government bears the burden of proof, right? And, and that leads to your point, A.G., which here, um, I'm going to read to you from page 14. This is Sussman's lawyers, but this might as well be Allison Gill. Quote, uh, the indictment alleges further that had Mr. Sussman disclosed that he was representing specific clients, it might have prompted the FBI general counsel to ask for the identity of such clients, which in turn might have prompted further questions and that the FBI might have taken additional or more incremental steps before opening and or closing an investigation and might have allocated its resources differently or more efficiently and a covered and sorry and uncovered more complete information about the reliability and provenance of the purported data at issue. <laughs> yes, and I'd like to note that they put in in this filing of a bill of particulars emphases added because okay. every single time <laughs> the word might appeared it was uh, italicized yeah. so it <laughs> might have prompted the fbi might have taken additional steps might have allocated its resources might have and i was like ah so it appears that the watkins latham lawyers also had issues with the word might as it <laughs> pertains to materiality. Um, and so I was like, yay, but also at the same time, oh my God, this indictment is so terrible. Uh, <laughs> another consideration you had, you had, Andrew, was about the he said, he said nature of the quote unquote lie. Yeah. And yeah. we talked about this with Eliason. <laughs> and let me read to you, because this is so good, we might as well have written this, you and I, Andrew. Uh, they say, at bottom... The special counsel has brought a false statement charge on the basis of a purported oral statement made over five years ago for which there is only a single witness, Mr. Baker, for which there is no recording and for which there are no contemporaneous notes by anyone who was actually in the meeting. <laughs> Not only that, <laughs> but the special counsel has brought this false statement charge, even though Sussman had consistently maintained, including in testimony under oath, that he met with Mr. Baker on behalf of a cyber expert client. And even though Mr. Baker has testified under oath in ways that corroborate rather than undermine Sussman's account, for example, 
Baker testified that he did not remember Sussman specifically saying whether he was meeting on behalf of a client. And that what he did remember is that Sussman met with him because cyber experts had come across suspicious information <laughs> and they wanted to brought to the FBI. Now, unpack that, Andrew, because yeah, it's no, like that, guy that alone, was... no notes, no recording five years ago. And he testified under oath that what you allege in this indictment is fucking bullshit. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and that was the point that you made uh, to Randall, to me, uh, it, it, the comparisons that are being made, right? Again, 18 USC 1001, false statement in a government investigation, are to, right, uh, Michael Flynn, George Papadopoulos. But remember, in all of those cases, we knew what the false statement was, right? That That is kind of, you know, it's like when you sue someone for defamation, right? You identify the false things they said about you. If you sue someone for defamation and you say, well, you know, like they came in and they were really shady about X, Y, right? Like that's not defamation, right? And and similarly in the criminal case, like that's not 18 USC 1001 unless you can identify what the false statement is. So what the court is going to have to do here is decide whether to grant the request for a bill of particulars. I, I think they will, right? And, and if mm. they do, that will require the government to produce to the defense more information not presently given in the charging documents, and and again, we pointed. This, I think I think Randall Eisen was was especially uh, good on this point that you know it's a twenty seven page indictment that was twenty six <laughs> and a half pages of rhetoric, and you know sort of omitted uh, kind of the key things that you would need you know in a in a typical indictment, right? So, among other things, what the defense is asking for is the exact words of Sussman's alleged false statement, they have to get that. Which crime the special counsel believes Sussman has committed. And <laughs> Right, because, because they sort of, in the indictment, they were like, uh, they sort of said he, he didn't say something, but then said he did say something materially false. So is that 1000A1 or 1001A2, right? Like, right, you don't even yeah. tell us what effing crime you're you're accusing him here of they don't even spell it out they don't give the 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 code and the the thing do they no they don't and then as 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 you correctly point out to the extent that the allegation is a material omission right because omissions are different than than false statements under 1001a1 then they're entitled to know a the specific information that Sussman failed to disclose b to whom C, what legal duty required Mr. Sussman to disclose such information? And D, why the information was material. <laughs> so it all comes back to that word that uh, so so caught your attention and uh, and exactly rightly so. Yeah, and what legal duty requires you, right? Because yeah. you and I had talked to Eliason about like, look, if, if, if I'm doing a podcast... Or if I'm appearing on a show and I say, I am here on behalf of the Department of Veterans Affairs. But if I don't, I don't have a legal duty to say that I am. You know, I might have a VA really wishes I did duty. Uh, but I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Now, all this is a bill of particulars being filed without prejudice to any other pretrial motions Sussman may bring on the matter. And that stuck out to me because they said it every single paragraph they could. <laughs> they said, oh, and further, without prejudice to any other pretrial motions. Would that include a pretrial motion to just dismiss the entire case completely, either after they got all the, the information uh, that they need and said, okay, well, here's why we should dismiss it, or just dismiss it on the grounds that John Durham was not appointed under any known authority Given special counsel regulations, uh, 28 U.S. Code section, I think, 600.3a, in which states special counsel shall be chosen from outside the government. I mean, these kinds of these are are these the other pretrial mo without prejudice to, to pretrial motions? Is that kind of what they're saying? Yes. And, and so all of this, this is <laughs> this is uh, the kind of procedural geekery that I love that, you know, it is. Uh, mm, this is about I know you set me up perfectly. Um. So this is really about timing, right? So this is a motion for a bill of particulars under Federal Rule Criminal Procedure 7F. Under 7F, you have the absolute right to request a bill of particulars within 14 days of the indictment being handed down, right? If it's outside 14 days, you have 
um, what you do is you seek leave of court. And in the court's discretion, they can decide, oh, in the interest of justice, we're either going to permit or deny you to file your bill of particulars. So as good practice, when you see an indictment like this, that is, despite being 27 pages long, unbelievably short on the facts that you need to know whether to defend your client or not, you, you want to file your motion for a bill of particulars to understand this right away within those first two weeks. Hmm. Now, um, so clock starts ticking. You got to get it in before 14 days. Otherwise, the court could just say, yeah, you know, this is a meritorious motion, but uh, too late. You know, you should have been in the first two weeks. In terms of your question, right, arguing uh, an argument that I am positive Sussman's lawyers will make, right? That is the ultra virus claim that we discussed that said, John Durham, not appointed under any known authority um, and uh, not properly a special counsel with with authority to bring this case, um, that would probably fall within federal rule uh, 12B2 of the rules of criminal procedure, um, which allows a defendant to object that the court lacks jurisdiction at any time. So you can bring that motion whenever you want. Um, And... There are also a bunch of other dispositive motions, right, that 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 fall under 12b3 that can be raised at any time before trial, right? Those are things um, arguing that the indictment lacks specificity, right, which you could see being kind of the next step. If you get a bill of particulars and, right, Sussman's team still says, yeah, well, you know, we think you were like shady with Jim Baker, right? Like, yeah, you would then move to dismiss the indictment for lack of specificity. Um, You could move, this is an analog to the 12B6 civil motion, right? You can move that it fails to state a federal crime Um, or uh, for some other defect in the indictment, right? All of those fall under criminal Ah. 12B3. Yeah, and you can bring them at any time before trial. So this is a timing thing. They get they yep. first they have 14 days to get that bill of particulars out, and they say without prejudice to any other pretrial motions because there will be. Um, and then whenever they want, tomorrow if they want, they could file a, a, a motion to dismiss based on you know the fact that he has no standing or jurisdiction because he wasn't appointed under any authority as special counsel or. Like you said, they can uh, then or maybe they wait until they get back a response to the bill of particulars and then review it and then file motions to dismiss based on the bullshit that Durham will inevitably hand them um, in the in the in his reply. So, yeah, I think I think that makes more sense to me that it's a timing thing. And and so um, I'm glad you pointed that out because I was like, man, they really want me to know that this is without prejudice to future (laughs) motions, pretrial motions. and again, so particularly defendants, right? Particularly criminal defendants, we we want you to be able to argue in the alternative, and you know that's what they're doing. They're preserving their right to do that. Yeah, and I didn't see a leave of court request, but I thought that that the, I guess it it, it I thought it was three weeks. I thought there were more than fourteen days uh, between the indictment and the bill of particulars, unless they didn't receive the indictment until after it was filed with Pacer. Um, yeah, and that's because you that's and I right. talked about the indictment three weeks ago. It, it, yes, uh, but the the fourteen days runs from service. So I I presume uh, again mm. on the same basis that that you said right, which is uh, because we are seeing this now. Uh, I, I presume that it is within fourteen days of when they were served. Though I imagine even if it weren't and they did ask for leave of court, they would, they, which it just means permission, right? They, I, I'm pretty sure they would have gotten it. This is a pretty high profile case and I don't think yeah. any judge would be like, nope, I'm going to risk it. And you, you know, <laughs> I don't want to hear your really obviously good arguments for, <laughs> for a bill of particulars because <laughs> I, I really just want you to win on appeal. Uh, and as much as it would be cool to play tricks like that as a judge, it's, it's, they don't. No. And, and, and you raise, you know, whether left or right, regardless of sort of the merits of the opinion, um, the, the primary determinant, if you are a U.S. district court judge, is, is my opinion going to get slapped down on appeal? Right. And, and nobody wants that. So, uh, yeah, no. I think that is 100 percent correct. 
Yeah, and if they could come back and say, we filed a bill of particulars and asked for a leave of court, and you didn't grant it, and that's why we are where we are. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and that's yeah, an easy reversal. That yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. All right, well, that was fun. That was much better news than the A block. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the whole thing is an exercise in, in a waste of taxpayer money, uh, and and just a it's a political... I'm, I'm actually disappointed in john durham uh, who has a history of going after mafia mob bosses and bullshit uh, that he would participate in that kind of language and i and i have to question why that kind of 26 of 27 pages gene being nothing but a political ad campaign um is really disappointing for me uh, I, and I, I you know i'm not friend john durham's not my dad or anything but <laughs> i'm disappointed i i share that i will go back to you know, I came on your show to say uh, why I thought the appointment of Bill Barr was going to be a good thing. So, you know, there's or there's John plenty Durham or Bill Barr. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I was going. Back oh, yeah. To, yeah. To, to, I'm saying there's You're all the way back. There's plenty of disappointment in otherwise, you know, <laughs> institutional figures to go around that I just can't figure out. So. Yeah, true. All right, everybody, we have comings and goings next and we got some pretty interesting a new twist to comings and goings, so uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. It's Allison Gill, and this portion of Clean Up on L45 is brought to you by Feels CBD. F-E-A-L-S. I love it. It gives me the feels. CBD isn't about what you feel, though. It's about what you don't feel, like stress, anxiety, and pain. I definitely recommend Feels CBD. It is safe, it's organic, and it's helped me sleep better. It's reduced my anxiety. It's lessened soreness and pain after workouts or after sleeping. Uh, and keeping a clear head and feeling great is easy with feels. There's no hangovers or addictions. I feel calmer. My muscles are less sore. My mood is lifted. I can fall asleep more easily at night. Uh, I put a few drops of feels under your tongue and you can feel the difference within minutes. Deliveries are hassle-free and is delivered directly to your door without a prescription needed. And they have this amazing CBD hotline, which is free. And they can assist you in finding the exact right CBD dose for you. It's amazing. The Feels Monthly Membership makes self-care simple. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel at any time. It's a very, very friendly user interface, too. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash cleanup, and you'll get 50%, 50% off your first order with free shipping included. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash cleanup to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash cleanup. It's good to feel good. Everybody, welcome back. I have, I before we get to comings and goings, I have a couple uh, quick cleanups for you. The Biden administration is moving to relax the rules for the federal student loan forgiveness program. And this could offer debt relief to thousands of teachers, social workers, military members, people who work for the federal government, public servants. Um, and Congress created this program as a reward for college students who go into public service. Uh, as long as they made 10 years of payments on their federal student loans, the program erased the remainder. Yeah. So great program. But the problem is that more than 90 percent of applicants have been rejected. Right. Um, after making more than a decade of payments. Right. That's the precondition. Many borrowers have found that they have the wrong type of federal loan or a repayment plan that they thought would be eligible but isn't under the program. So thousands have been stuck with debt that they thought would be clear. Yeah, me included, right? Oh. Before Biden stepped in and, and discharged my entire student loan, I was battling with the PSLF, the Public Student Loan Forgiveness, for over five years, half of my fucking career in federal service, trying to get payments that I made to count toward that program, right? <laughs> and just before my student loans were discharged, they're like, yeah, we reviewed everything. Congratulations, these count. And and then Biden was like, ah, fuck it, I'm erasing the whole thing because of my disability uh, veteran status, uh, which was a new rule for him. He's chipping away at student debt. But now, through October 2022, borrowers who have worked 10 years in a qualifying job will be eligible for loan relief no matter what kind of federal loan repayment plan they have. Past loan payments that were previously ineligible will now count, moving tens of thousands of borrowers, uh, I think 550,000 borrowers, closer to the finish line, actually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and again, like we say, this matters. Right? <laughs> we, I, I would love to see comprehensive action on federal student loans 
Um, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it's hard to argue that this is not what a sensible adult grown-up government would do, right? Would look at a program yeah, that is and intended to help. Yeah, go, go, go ahead. Sorry. And, and Andrew, this matters not just to the borrowers, but to the people in their lives. For example, I, because my student loan was forgiven, I have an extra at least $1,000 in, uh, in income every month, which means I can hire more people, pay more people, and I pay taxes on that money now. I didn't before when I was making student loan payments. So I help the, the tax coffers. I help the deficit. I help jobs because of these simple moves it's not you know i just want to kind of make it clear that it doesn't just help that one individual so when people are like i had to pay my debt why should you not have to pay yours it doesn't help me at all it does fucking help you jeb so yeah. like shush sorry i get mad. <laughs> i love that no 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 i'm i am glad you did rant away um in in, <laughs> in other cleanup news biden uh on friday restored two sprawling national monuments in Utah, reversing a decision by the, the last guy that opened those national monuments up for mining and other developments for hundreds of thousands of acres in lands that are uh, held sacred by Native Americans and uh, home to archaeologically significant ancient cliff dwellings and petroglyphs. Um, you know, the kinds of things that, that people ought to be interested in. Um, this is the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante Monuments in southern Utah. They encompass more than 3.2 million acres of land. That is uh, roughly the size of the state of Connecticut. Um, they were created by Democratic administrations under a century-old law that allows presidents to protect sites considered historic, geographically, or culturally significant. And that's what they are. Yeah, and, and then in comes Donald, who wants to strip mine it, strip mine Jupiter Hollow. I, you know, I keep thinking of big business. Or, or you know, when they tried to put oil oil rigs uh, on the school grounds during Saved by the Bell, and, and poor Becky the Duck was coated in oil. Um, like, what? And that is just an evil Lex Luthor villain thing to fucking do, you know? <laughs> um, but in a separate action, he restored protections, uh, Biden did, at a marine conservation area off New England, off the coast that has been used for commercial fishing under an order by Donald. A rules change approved by Donald allowed for commercial fishing at the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument in the Atlantic Ocean, nearly 5,000 square miles southeast of Cape Cod. And uh, the fishermen are mad, but I don't care. <laughs> And a uh, little bit of news, uh, Deb Holland, the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary, said that Biden's action was not just about the national monuments, right? Quote, it's about this administration centering the voices of indigenous people and affirming the shared stewardship of this landscape with tribal nations. The president's action today writes a new chapter that embraces indigenous knowledge ensures tribal leadership has a seat at the table and demonstrates that by working together, we can build a brighter future for all of us. I, I, I love those words. It, she's exactly right, right? Like that, this is mm -hmm. a, a question about increasing the diversity of voices. It's not about, you know, always ruling on right? Like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of claims that, you know, things are sacred, right? Like, but it is about hearing from the individuals who lived on that land uh, for thousands of years, rather than just you know sort of presuming their intent, um, one way or the other, right? And 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 I, I love that. Uh, uh, in a way, I mean, this has been a continuing theme of ours in comings and goings that the Biden administration has been way more progressive in terms of diversity, in terms of diversity of voices uh than i anticipated frankly yeah and and you know we are recording this monday october 11th which uh which we'll just call the holiday formerly known as columbus day because <laughs> the white house has declared that it is indigenous people's day first white house in history to do yeah. so and you know i mean which is great i've been for 12 years i've been saying why the hell do we have a columbus day um why 
I, I think my joke was, how do you even cel- celebrate Columbus Day? What do you walk to the wrong house and murder everybody there? Um, <laughs> so it it made no sense to me because he was lost and he was an asshole. And then I, I think I go on to say, I got lost one time. I don't get a day. Um, so this is, uh, you know, all joking aside, um, just an incredible um, set of events to save Bears Ears and, and Grand Staircase uh, on what is now declared Indigenous Peoples Day. Yep. I love it. Okay, Andrew, now for the thing, the twist. The twist, mm-hmm. right? Usually we talk about who's coming and who's going. But this is about moving rocks out of the way, okay? <laughs> because you... you, you <laughs> U.S. Circuit Judges Jose Cabranes and Rosemary Pooler, two Democratic appointees of different ideological leanings, by the way, one's more conservative, have told the White House they plan to take senior status. They were arguing at first, like, you do it, you do it. They're both going to take senior status, which could shift and probably will shift the orientation of the court and giving Joe Biden another opportunity to reshape the bench. Can you tell us which court this is? And and why this is uh, so awesome and what senior status is, please. Can you enlighten us? Yeah, let me let me unpack all of that. Let, let's start off with senior status. Um, senior status comes from uh, 28 U.S.C. Section 371, um, which allows <laughs> the title of that section is retirement on salary, retirement in senior status. So basically, it's a kind of semi retirement, right? Federal judges are appointed and constitutionally they serve for life. But um, that the the and, and that cannot be eliminated by an act of Congress, right? So there's nothing we can do short of impeachment uh, to remove the unqualified losers that Donald Trump elevated to the federal bench. But the terms of that, like exactly how they're serving, can indeed be adjusted by Congress. And so Congress passed a law that said, If you're over 65 and you have 15 years on the bench, then you can elect senior status. And basically, that turns you into kind of a roving judge at large, right? And you can be assigned to that court uh, and also to any court that is inferior to that court, right? Um, So Jose Cabranes is uh, 81 Rosemary Pooler is 83, so one might say they have a well-deserved semi-retirement coming to them. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're both in their 80s. Uh, this is the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which was um, reshaped by Donald, you know, as with the, the entirety of the federal judiciary. Uh, this will open up two full-time judicial spots for new judges on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals uh, that governs New York, New England, right? Um, and uh, uh, will still allow uh, both of those judges to be assigned to cases on a reduced workload. So um, pretty sensible system. Yeah, hey, question for you. Uh, did I hear you say that the senior status rules are subject to congressional change it's that's a is that a, something congress has to approve damn yes. it okay because uh, <laughs> i was going to say otherwise what a fantastic opportunity to lower the age and requirements on the senior status and uh, and expand the federal bench by offering a bunch of uh, more have more people qualified to take senior status so that you have more seats to fill and more judges on the federal bench now i mean granted the spots of active judges still remains the same but then you got all sorts of cool Democrats in there, or Democrat-appointed, Biden-appointed <laughs> judges, and, and and everyone else is just sort of roving. I don't know. It was just a thought, but I guess could Congress we, has could to we do take that some too. of Damn these it. Trump imbeciles, create a special class of judges that gets paid ten <laughs> times their base salary, right, and and basically bribe them off the court? Like we could do that, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's what I that, was thinking. <laughs> we're joking about it, but like that's a thing that we could do. If we elect more Democrats, it's not a likely thing, uh, but, uh, you know, we are not powerless to reshape the federal judiciary, to double the amount of federal judges, as you and I have been calling for for forever, you know, to pack the Supreme Court. To, uh, and and all of it is contingent on electing more Democrats in, in 2022. So 
uh, to Congress, uh, to Congress, yep, because they're yep. the ones who would have to do that. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, uh, knowing that we've got two vacancies now, uh, what uh, that's cool. Now, moving on to we've had some <laughs> appointments that we got to this week. And, and I believe you have those, that list of appointments if you just want to go through that. Yeah, that's right, Allison. So today, President Biden announced uh, his intent to nominate the following individuals. These are a lot of uh, inspector general potential nominees. And again, this is the public announcement. They have not formally been submitted to the Senate. All of these require uh, the advice and consent uh, of the Senate. These are important roles. Uh, but again, folks that about which, you know, quite candidly, I don't know that much. So it's important for us to to uh, show that, you know, we're, we're aware Biden is still doing his job. So Cummings, a big welcome to James O'Brien, the nominee for coordinator for sanctions policy with the rank of ambassador at Department of State. To Michael Kubayanda, who is the nominee for commissioner of the Postal Regulatory Commission. To Elizabeth De Leon Bargava, who is the nominee for assistant secretary for administration at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. To Parisa Salehi, the nominee for Inspector General at the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Brian Tomney, Inspector General at the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Ben Wagner, Inspector General at the Tennessee Valley Authority. And John Putnam, General Counsel at the Department of Transportation. So these are critical general counsels, typically third in line. Um, these are crucial positions that were unfilled at these uh, cabinet level agencies, and um, and they are now uh, fast tracked to be filled. So uh, welcome aboard to the to those seven folks. Yeah, especially with um, the Department of Transportation General Counsel with the with the forthcoming infrastructure bills is going to be a hugely important position. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and Putnam, you know, was a was a transportation environment energy attorney in uh, in Denver, Colorado and uh, and in Washington DC. So, you know, he's got a long history of being involved in transportation. I I I don't know much about him beyond that, but uh, but again, significant kind of roll up your sleeves position and uh, and it's good for us to see uh, bodies filling those seats. Agreed. So, welcome Welcome, welcome to all. Welcome aboard. Uh, how many? How many? Well, I'm assuming we still have quite a few <laughs> seats to fill. Uh, we but still we did do. Get, by the way, <laughs> we did get. By the way, this week, and I don't know if we covered this last week or not. I apologize if I can't remember. But we got we got new um, U.S. attorneys in yep. the Eastern District uh, of New York and the Southern District of New York, the Sovereign District of New York. Uh, I I do think we covered it. Uh, I put out a tweet. Um, was saying good morning to everyone except Donald, Ivanka Jr. and Eric. I just want to introduce you to the new U.S. attorney at the Southern District of New York, um, <laughs> which is a, a very crucial and critical position considering um, all of those redacted Appendix D Mueller report um, handoffs. I'm certain some of them went to the Southern District. Um, we had that case closed against individual one in the Southern District without um, prejudice. We had, um, we've got Rudy going on in the Southern District. We've got Ukraine going on in the Eastern District. I mean, these are two really big appointments. So I'm, I'm interested to see. Now, we've had some good acting folks um, in, in those positions before. I don't want to be like, it was bar until yesterday. That's not the case. Um, all right, that's it. That's the show. Um, thanks again to all our patrons who support this, make it possible. Andrew, thanks for joining us from the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your vacation. And uh, again, a happy birthday to you. I know that Aww. you celebrated while a sea. Uh, so I, I uh, just wanted to extend that. And uh, anybody who wants to send their birthday wishes into Andrew, you can just uh, post up on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. Any final thoughts, Andrew? No, just uh, so happy to be back doing the show. And uh, and I missed the past couple weeks. And uh, and thank you for the uh, the kind birthday wishes. You're welcome. You're older than me, so it's always a pleasure. <laughs> oh, is that where we're going? <laughs> all right, all right. I don't know if that's actually true. Throw down, throw Who's down offline. Gonna, uh, yeah, I'm 29. All right. So I don't know. <laughs>
Oh, <laughs> I win. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Until then. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. They Might Be Giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And They Might Be Giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now They Might Be Giants are playing their breakthrough album, Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This happens to pay for with somebody else's money. Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Moji Alawode-L. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast dedicated to keeping you informed while making you laugh as we all navigate this post-Roe v. Wade hellscape. The Supreme Court has declared that all of our uteri are just Airbnbs for the seat of the patriarchy. So every week we break down all the garbage news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with the abortion providers and activists we need to be hearing from right now. Plus, we talk to your favorite comedians. Because face it, if your revolution doesn't have laughter, you're doing it wrong. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, subscribe, join us on Patreon. Because when BS is popping, we pop off.